Good afternoon. So here we are, you've been here almost 24 hours. I wonder how many of you would say, the retreats really exceeded my expectations. <laughs> I really got just what I needed. <laughs> I'm restless. What time's dinner? <laughs> oh, walking and meditation again? <laughs> Um, this, someone sent me this. This is this is very old now, but it's still kind of relevant. So someone sent me this. Uh, I guess it's a brochure, and this picture of a person meditating, floating, as they often do. You know, as you were today, right? You were just floating <laughs> blissfully. And the, and the ad. It's an ad for the one of these meditation. CDs, you can tell how old it is now, CD series. In 28 minutes, you'll be meditating like a Zen monk, it says. The ultra, the five-level ultra meditation system for transcendence, peak experience, and discovering your place in the universe. Push-button meditation, a vacation in 28 minutes. So we've had more than 28 minutes here. I'm not seeing many Zen monks around the place. <laughs> <laughs> right. This this stuff is why often we suffer so much on retreat because we think, why aren't I like that? I paid a lot of money to get here. <laughs> right. I got a nice silk cushion and a nice pashmina shawl, and you know, I got all the accoutrements. And my mind is far from floating on clouds. <laughs> it's down there in the muckety muck. Uh, or asleep at the wheel, or somewhere other than here. Right. This is uh, sometimes the, the rude awakening when you come to uh, an intensive retreat. Many of you, most of you, have uh, been meditating for a while. You know, you, reg you sit regularly in your, in your life and probably enjoy that 10, 20, 30 minutes, and you think, oh, you know, a retreat will be more of the same. <laughs> So I shouldn't laugh so much, but. <laughs> and maybe for some of you it is. I don't want to deny, you know, there's a range of experience. Some of you are probably exceedingly um, delighted to be here and really relishing every moment. Some of you are wondering, why did you sign up for this retreat <laughs> when you could have gone to Hawaii or something, you know? flown over the Pineapple Express, where it's coming from, Hawaii. <coughs> it's the storm that's coming in, in case you don't know. Um, someone once said, uh, when talking, they were in a, in a group that we had, like we had today, and she said, I'd rather be at work. <laughs> at least I feel like I'm getting something done. Here I just feel like I'm spacing out and watching my mind run all over the place. What's the point? She said, someone else said, I could be in a spa in Napa sipping Chardonnay, <laughs> but I'm here with my aching knees and my sore back and my wandering mind. What's up? <laughs> Why do you people do this? <laughs> Is this some kind of masochism thing you're into? You know, long schedule, sitting and walking and sitting and walking and sitting and walking and then more sitting and walking in case you missed the earlier ones. <laughs> 
So hopefully it will start to make sense as the days go on. The first day is often the hardest for anybody, whether you've sat for a day or 20 years, we arrive, as Joanna spoke a little to yesterday, from the busyness of our lives and, and usually going at 100 miles an hour. And then we get to Spirit Rock and we're going at one mile an hour. And there's nothing to do and there's no escape and there's no distractions and there's no gadgets and there's no anything except being here with ourselves. And then you're giving this onerous task to be present and to sustain your attention in the present moment, moment after moment. There's, you might have noticed that there's a lot of moments in the day. <laughs> I mean, if we count them up, it's a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's really just one moment, but it's sort of like a lot of moments. Coming back, coming back, coming back, coming back. So I'm saying all this just to normalize your experience, right? Sometimes we think, oh, God, everybody else looks like they're just about to float off onto that damn cloud. And I'm like, you know, can barely sit still and, you know, want to run out the room. But actually, that's, you know, if you look around, it looks like everyone's almost enlightened except you. But, you know, we know that's not actually, well, you might almost be enlightened, but we know that not everyone's having an easy time because we hear from you. We hear about the the tiredness or the grief that you've come with or the back pain or the um, restless mind or the you know, whole host of things that you and we uh, traverse each time we come to do intensive practice. So, so the, the, the theme for my talk is mindfulness as a path of awakening even though today for many of you mindfulness was a path to sleepiness <laughs> and dullness <laughs> and napping. <laughs> and what does that mean to wake up through this practice of mindful awareness? What does that mean to wake up and when we use the word awakening, awakening from confusion, awakening from freeing ourselves up from suffering, uh, coming more into clarity and alignment an understanding with, with the, w the way reality is, the way it presents itself in our experience universally. So Rumi has this lovely line, which I think very much pertains to what we're doing here on retreat. He says, and you, when will you begin that long journey into yourself? And you, when will you begin that long journey into yourself? So retreats are like a long journey into yourself. And like every journey, particularly a hero or heroine's journey, they're not so easy. There's the struggle part, there's first the confusion, then there's the discovery, there's the searching, there's the struggles, there's the illumination, there's a the transformation, there's all kinds of different stages in that journey. And I think we'll also you'll also be experiencing that uh, on this retreat. There's a Zen cartoon, there's two guys sitting next to each other on retreat, and one's obviously just asked the other one, like, okay, so, like, what's going to happen now? Like, we've been doing this a while. And, and the, the monk says, the older senior monk says, nothing happens next, this is it. <laughs> 
nothing happens next. This is it. Right? We're waiting for some kind of, you know, we're so stimulated in our lives that we're waiting for like the event, <laughs> the performance or something. This is it. This is it. This moment. And then this moment. So then we, we substitute the stimulation for dinner. <laughs> or this talk sometimes becomes the highlight because it's like, oh, someone's talking. It must be, you know, it's like TV, Dharma TV. <laughs> Ooh, something to do other than watch my breath. How exciting. <laughs> so so how, do, how is this practice a path of transformation? How does this, how does, what has this got to do with anything in your life? And I hear that question a lot. What has walking slowly up and down, how is that going to make my life better? How does following my breath with awareness, how is that going to relieve my suffering? These are very good questions. Anybody had that question today? <laughs> There's a few nodding hands. Yeah, what are we doing this stuff for? That's a very good question. I ask that myself a lot. What is this, you know, as the Buddha said, to what end? To what end are we doing anything? What is the purpose? So I had a student come to a course, I teach this course, it's a year-long course called Essential Buddhist Teachings and I go through all the various foundational teachings of the Buddha. And she came as a last-ditch uh, last resort. Uh, she close to getting fired at work. She had uh, bad reviews from her uh, uh, manager and from colleagues and um, was trying to find something that would help her sort of sort herself out. So she signed up for this course, started to meditate, learned about mindfulness, started implying it in her life. And after you know the end of that first 10 weeks, um, she still had a job. She started to get really great reviews from her colleagues and people started to ask her, what, what's changed? You seem like a different person. What are you doing? And she said, well, not much. I'm going to this class and I'm learning to meditate and I'm learning to be more mindful and more aware and be aware of my thoughts and my emotions and my reactions and how I communicate and how I sort of move in the world. And the, the course transformed her life. She started getting glowing reviews at work. Her relationship improved. She started to feel happier, a greater sense of well-being, less reactivity. Like it was miraculous to see what happened in, in this space of really weeks. Um, and that can happen when we, when we start to uh, develop and cultivate these qualities of awareness, presence, mindfulness, attention, kindness, patience, receptivity, right? which is really what we're learning to do here. The point isn't to become a good nasal, nasal, navel-gazing meditator. That's a meditation, a, a breath meditation expert. Right? The po the point of that, the vehicle for the as the walking or the breath or anything that we point you towards, 
is to cultivate this jewel of awareness, this jewel of mindful attention that we can then bring to any and everything that we do and say and engage with in our lives. That is liberating. Certainly liberating for me. I, when I came to this practice, I was an angry, young, confused anarchist, punk rocker in London, squatting houses, did a lot of uh, violent protests against the government and corporations, and was really uh, had a lot of hatred and a lot of self-hatred. And um, it was dropping out of school. I couldn't, there were a lot of things I was having a problem with. And I stumbled, as I said, into this meditation center. And I'd never thought to look at my own mind as a possible source of my pain. Right? We tend to not look here. We tend to look out there. You know, maybe it's my partner. Maybe I need a new relationship. Maybe it's my job. Maybe it's the government. Maybe it's, you know, I'm not saying, and we live in a, in a world where there's lots of things that are, that are problematic. But if we don't turn inwards and look at also the source from where so much of that distress and anxiety and stress comes from, it will continue. And that's what I found. I, it was like a revelation to see how much suffering was going on inside that I was blaming family, politics, or whatever for. And back then, this practice, as I mentioned, was pretty obscure. You know, there was probably, I don't know if there was any other Buddhist center, uh, there was one other center in, the, in, England, in London at the time. Um, all my family thought I'd gone and joined a cult. And my friends kind of thought I was more weird than I already was. And, um, you know, now, and I, you know, we look around and, and mindfulness is everywhere. You know, I teach mindfulness in a lot of different places, not just in meditation centers. I teach at Google, I've taught at the UN, I've taught in prisons and universities and um, you know, online. And um, it's really accessible. It's because it's an amazing transformation that in the space of a few years, mindfulness has become mainstream, you know, which is a great thing. You know, I have a lot of hope in that. We just, Joe and I, Joe and I just came from a meeting, uh, the Spirit Rock Teacher Council. We've just grown the Teacher Council now. There's now about 50 teachers on the council, partly responding to the growth of Spirit Rock, which is responding to the growth of interest in the Dharma, in mindfulness, in these practices. But um, when these teachings first originated with the Buddha 2,600 years ago, mindfulness was equally not something that was taught or practiced. What was taught was various um, concentration practices, uh, ascetic practices, um, and uh, through his own practice and diligence and study and investigation, uh, took this quality of mindful awareness of, of an investigation and began to really pay attention to his experience in the same way that you're doing here. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be aware? What does it mean to suffer? How does one find a way out given that we have a mind and body and heart? So he began that exploration and through his own inquiry and practice began to understand the causes of suffering, the causes of well-being, which is really why we're here. 
The mindfulness is in service of understanding. In, in the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is a Sutta means teaching, and it's the teaching where a lot of these practices come, comes from, he says, mindfulness is the direct path for purification, for the surmounting of sorrow, for the, for the ending of suffering, for the realizing of peace and freedom. What is that? The four foundations of mindfulness. So that's a pretty radical statement. He's saying that through this practice, a simple practice of mindful awareness of body and other things in our experience, we can find freedom. We can find peace. We can find well-being in the midst of wherever you are. And that's a pretty both provocative and inviting challenge. What does it mean to be at peace, to feel free, right now, to be unburdened by stress. So, so we've been cultivating mindfulness for a day. What is mindfulness? Anybody like to say? From your direct experience, what is mindfulness? Just shout it out, a word or two. Paying attention to the present. What else? Awareness. Yes, awareness. We use those words. Uh, whatever that word is, conjointly, interchangeably, thank you. <laughs> what else? What is mindfulness from your experience? What have you been doing all day? Accepting the present, right? Being aware of your body. Mm -hmm. Having fun. All right. Who said that? (laughs) All right. That's a good one. I haven't heard that one before. (laughs) Yeah. So mindfulness is one of these words that's hard to define. It comes from a Pali word. Sati, which literally means memory, recollection. Um, So present moment recollection is one definition. I like the term clear awareness. It's the the ability to know what's happening in our body, heart, mind, environment experience. Attending with a quality of curiosity. But it's simply knowing what's happening. It's conscious knowing of your moment-to-moment experience. And we see, as we start to attend to our experience and attend to that quality of attention, that that's not always the case. That actually, it's quite fleeting at times that we're consciously knowing what we're doing. How many times today were you, you sat down, you made the intention to, to be aware of your body and your breath, and then you found yourself I don't know, on vacation in Europe or you're repainting your bathroom or you're having a row with your partner in your head. How many people just disappeared from the present moment and went somewhere else without your control and you wake up in some dream, some story, some trance? Isn't it amazing? You think you're in control of your experience And you say, okay, I'm going to follow the breath. I'm even going to count it. 
and I'm going to give it my all. And you get to seven <laughs> or three and you've gone somewhere, even though you're determined not to. That is a great insight right there. Who's in control? Who is running the show? That is a profound question. Time magazine, once they did an article on the nature of the self and the, 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 the summation of all the research on the studies of the self was that there wasn't one. There was no part of the brain that was the agency behind all of the things that we do and say and act and think and feel. We see that this, this experience is happening by itself. Thoughts are happening by themselves. Sensations and feelings and all kinds of things coming and going. We'll get more into that as the retreat goes on. I want to come back to this simple quality of, of mindfulness. Knowing what's happening as it's happening. There's a great cartoon from Dharma teacher Gary Lawson from the far side. And there's a picture of a bunch of cows in a meadow eating. And one of the cows has had this sort of mindfulness epiphany and he says, well, wakes up. <laughs> like startled. And the caption says, wait a minute, this is grass. They've been feeding us grass. <laughs> right? That's what, you know, we wake up. Oh, right. oh, I have a body. Oh, I haven't felt it for a few years. Wow, look at that. My thoughts, my mind is out of control. I never noticed. I hadn't slowed down to pay attention long enough. Or my attention is really quite distractible. Who would have thought? I would have, you know, if someone said, came up to you on the street and said, hey, you know, how's your concentration? You'd say, oh, it's fairly good. You know, I, you know, I'm a you know, programmer at work and I'm pretty focused. Yeah, it's pretty good. But when we actually get to, you to pay attention, we see, wow, it's kind of humbling. I remember Jack Cornfield tells a story. He's one of the founders of Spirit Rock and he's sat a three-month retreat and he's been sitting for a long time. He's been a monk, he's a teacher, he's well-known. And he goes down the hallway to his friend and colleague, Joseph Goldstein, at the end of this three-month course and, uh, and just to check in, hey, how was your retreat? And the first thing that Jack says is, it's humbling, isn't it? It's humbling, this practice. If you're not humbled, then you're probably not paying attention. This practice is humbling on many levels. And then humbling in a good way, not in a shaming way, but just like, wow, this isn't easy. This takes work. This takes practice. This takes a whole lot of beautiful, important qualities like patience, like kindness, like perseverance, like wisdom. So the Buddha gave these lovely analogies for mindfulness, um, and which gives us a little bit of a flavor of the range of the practice. So one of the, one of the, the metaphors was, um, it's like a surgeon's probe. Right, the tip of a surgeon's, you could say, I don't know, whatever a probe is, but, you know, uh, precise, detailed, focused. But he also said it's like a watchtower, someone standing at the top of a watchtower, surveying the whole landscape, 
Right? So mindfulness, are this quality of awareness can be very focused, like with the breath, or very open, like when you're walking down this, this road here towards the dining room and you're taking in the beauty of the day. My favorite analogy is, it's, he said, it's like um, a, a, a cowherder boy or girl who's, li- who's leaning back against a tree, relaxed and easy in the shade, s- surveying their herd of cows, waiting for them, being mindful of when they uh, are likely to stray onto the farmer's fields. So this idea of being relaxed but alert. Right? We're not cat over the mouse hole, watching the breath with, you know, kind of white knuckling it. I'm not going to miss another breath. Right? And we're not so relaxed that we're spaced out and asleep. Right? We're relaxed in the body but alert and vigilant with our attention. This is a beautiful quality and balance that we're learning to live with, with many things in our lives. So the, the training that we're having you do, mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of walking, of standing, of eating, right? these are trainings partly, and as we've mentioned, the first day is really learning to arrive, learning to get here, to uh, arrive in your body, arrive in the present, arrive in this step, in this bite, in this moment, whatever the moment is. But not as an end in itself, although that's a beautiful thing to be abiding in the present. As I said yesterday, the, the context of mindfulness is in, in, in terms of the Buddha's teaching. It's in context of the Eightfold Path, which is a, a way of understanding the whole of our lives. And mindfulness is just one piece of the pie. Mindfulness is in service, as I said yesterday, of helping us see more clearly. This practice, uh, insight meditation, is known as vipassana. Vipassana means literally means seeing clearly. So you'll have moments, perhaps today and over the days, where you see things really clearly. You might have a moment of aha. Oh, look at that. I never knew my mind was so restless. I never knew I spent so much of my time ruminating about the past. Or I never knew how tight my body got when I was worried and spinning, about, spinning out about the future. Right? These are momentary ahas that come out of the clarity of that awareness. As I look around the room and you all look a little, not all, some of you look a little tired, you might, I'm, you might be thinking, oh, well, not much clarity awareness happening over here, thank you very much. But over the days, you will see that it arises. <clears throat> so the phrase that, that, you, that you see in the text is satipanya, which means this cultivation of mindful wisdom. Panya means wisdom. So as we develop more awareness, we are learning to develop more wisdom. Wisdom comes out of clarity, out of seeing, out of understanding, out of getting intimate with our experience and knowing what causes suffering and what causes me to find peace or well-being. And the Buddha also talked about, (coughs) excuse my voice, it's a little mm, something. 
not quite all there. He said there's right mindfulness and there's wrong mindfulness. And you might think, well, how could mindfulness be wrong? Seems like a good thing to be aware, pay attention. Wrong mindfulness. So in the context of the practice, the whole point of this practice is moving from unwholesome, unskillful, painful states of mind and heart to ones that are more skillful, um, more fruitful, more kind, more wholesome. So um, wrong mindfulness would be cultivating attention, but that wouldn't serve the well-being of yourself or another person. So typical examples of that are um, a sniper. You know, we now have the scenario where snipers, uh, you know, in the military, are learning mindfulness. That will make them better marksmen. That will make them better at killing people. Is that right, mindfulness? Or maybe you know, there was a, there was an article about. Um, uh, how mindfulness will help you learn to make a killing on Wall Street. Is that wise mindfulness? Is that the intention of the practice? Right. Or a thief. A thief is, you could say, quite attentive, quite aware. It has to be to be able to pick, pick someone's pocket. Mindfulness is in service of freedom and well-being and happiness. Clearly, pickpocketing, thieving, etc., is not in service of your well-being. So, another thing that we're doing here on retreat is we're learning, we're training our attention. Uh, what's called samadhi in the in the tradition, where we're cultivating this balanced collectedness of mind and heart. As I said, we, we live, and maybe I mentioned this in, in, in the group, I can't remember where I mentioned this. We live in constant partial attention. Our attention is constantly divided, scattered, distracted. So part of the retreat is just learning how do we collect, how do we unify, how do we balance, how do we stabilize this attention. And these days I prefer the word, rather than the word meditation, I prefer the phrase, the verb. Is it a verb? I think it might be a verb. Maybe it's not a verb. But I prefer the, fra- the phrase meditative awareness. That rather than cultivating meditation, we're cultivating a meditative awareness, which is a depth of awareness, a depth of present moment attention that we can apply here sitting on our chair, we can apply as we're moving about the landscape, as we're interacting, as we're doing any activity. Ideally, we're learning to live with this meditative awareness, this contemplative awareness. And that informs everything that we do. But as I said, um, and, and we'll talk more about this as, as we go through the retreat, one of the things that we're learning to apply that meditative awareness to is what's getting in the way. How come I'm not just swimmingly at peace here at Spirit Rock? You've got nice food, there looks like nice people, the weather's pleasant, you know, you're comfortable. Why aren't you uninterruptedly at peace and happy? Maybe some of you are, and if you are, fantastic. But I'd say probably most of you, we did a survey Right? We wouldn't get many raised hands. How many of you had a day of in uninterrupted peace and well-being? 
right? And if that's if this if that's not the case, then what what's happening that interferes with a natural sense of well-being? That's what we want to bring that mindful attention to. And as I've said, one of th- one of the ways that we that interferes with that is our mind, is our busy mind, our restless mind. You know, the the research. I don't know how they managed to do this research, but that this research says we think somewhere between fifteen and sixty thousand thoughts a day. That's a lot of thoughts. No wonder you're tired. <laughs> you're watching them all. It's exhausting. Stanford did some research and they said that 90% of those we thought yesterday. I think it's probably higher, actually. They're all repeats. We're watching these repeats. Another piece of research, I'm a little, you know, I hold all this research with a big grain of salt, but um, Harvard did some research and they they tracked several thousand people uh, for a few weeks to see if they were, how attentive they were to their experience. Turns out, well, I'll have you guess how how much were people present to what they were doing in the day? What percentage? Just shout it out. What do you think? Realistically, <laughs> five, <laughs> eleven. <laughs> so it was actually forty-seven percent, which is half the day. So that's pretty good. But then half the day, where are they? Where are we? We're not here. We're somewhere else. We're spacing out. We're thinking, planning, worrying, ruminating, judging, or just checked out. A little problematic when you're driving a two-ton, you know, 60-mile-an-hour vehicle yeah, or you know, talking to your child or having a meeting at work or whatever it is you're doing. Right? By the time you're 60, if you sleep eight hours a day and you're only present for half of the waking hours, which is another eight hours, by the time you're 60, you've only been present 20 years out of the 60, which means life's going really quickly. <laughs> no wonder it feels like we're running out of time because we're not present. Mindfulness actually helps you slow time down in a certain way and be more present to the beauty of life. And life is very beautiful. It's also very challenging, but it's beautiful. We also get to see, so that's one of the first insights, how many thoughts we have. And then you want to pay attention, well, what kind of thoughts? Am I mostly lost in the future, planning? Am I lost in the past? Am I lost in the present, judging? Where do you go when you're not here? Get as equally curious about where you go as as what's happening here. Get to know these patterns of mind. Because these patterns of mind are unsatisfying. I think of thinking in our experience, often as a substandard form of happiness. We think because it's pleasant, but actually compared to the well-being that comes from a trained mind that's not lost in thought, it's actually quite um, not that interesting. So another reason why we're not here is because we don't like it. Maybe you're bored, or you've got some physical pain, or you've got some heartache, or you've got some stress in your life that you just can't put down, or just any number of things. Maybe the person sitting next to you is breathing, you know, with a foghorn, and you just, you know, you just don't want to be here. So what do we do? We check out. We don't want to be with that which is unpleasant. There's a cartoon, there's a woman standing in line, and there's a 
family in front of her and the kids are having tantrums and screaming and she's very distressed by the noise and this thought bubble pops up into her head her head she must have gone to a meditation class because the, the thought bubble says i want to learn to be in the present moment but not this moment more like a moment at the beach right and that's true for us i'll be present if it's lovely and and beautiful and the frogs are croaking and the you know the crickets are chirping and my breath is jolly and but not when it's a disagreeable right and since life is full of pleasure and pain and you know both highs and lows joys and sorrows that means that's one of the reasons why we check out 47% of the day because we don't like it and think of all the things you don't like traffic long meetings at work um you know house chores you know all kinds of things we don't like so we just vacate and life goes by sadly or we're lost in this idea that somewhere else is better i should have gone to that yoga retreat i know that would have been i would have been enlightened by now or maybe that tibetan center's looked really interesting and more exotic or something This is a a piece from uh, Lao Tzu, some variation on uh, a chapter in the Tao Te Ching, beautiful Taoist text. He says, "Always we hope someone else has the answer. Some other place will be better. Some other time it will all turn out well. This is it. No one else has the answer. No other place will be better, and it has already turned out. It has already turned out. That's a great, profound line." At the center of being you have the answers there is no need to run outside for better seeing nor peer from a window rather abide at the center of your being for the more you leave it the less you learn rather abide at the center of your being reside in the center of your experience for the more you leave it the less you learn okay? so here the lab of our learning in this retreat is your own mind body heart this is this is what you're studying this is the vehicle to understanding life the buddha said everything we need to know is accessible in this you know fathom long 6 foot body so that's why we're cultivating this mindfulness of body to get curious everything that we see and that illuminates how we create suffering and well-being is right here it's not some it is not in some exotic transcendent experience right we think of meditation right this the peace pictures looks like an out of the body experience insight mindfulness practice is an in the body experience the buddha talked about mindfulness of body being the one's best friend as in it's an ally for experience he said there's one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to leads to peace to clear comprehension vision knowledge happy life here and now culmination of wisdom and awakening what is that one thing mindfulness in the body that you might think of that as a koan what does he mean it this is going to lead to freedom it just it's tired and achy and restless and and itchy how is that going to make me more happy 
This is a good question. This is the invitation. How we relate to how we relate to our bodies is a metaphor for how we relate to everything. How we relate to the breath, our physical pain, our joys, sounds, sensations. Right? We can learn so much about the nature of peace and the nature of suffering. Because in mindfulness, there's two key elements going on. There's what's happening, like the breath, or your knee pain, or the sound, or your neighbor's breath, or your itchiness, or your boredom, and your relationship to it. We sometimes catch what's happening. We don't necessarily catch our relationship, our attitude, or reaction to it. If someone's fiddling and restless around us, we immediately get irritated because it's pulling us away from our meditation, which we're enjoying. We immediately think that person has to stop doing that. They're annoying. Don't they know this is a meditation retreat? They should be banned. And we get into this whole drama. We call it a Vipassana vendetta. That we think they're like the, you know, the devil and they're ruining my... I was just about to get enlightened and did you, you know, that cough, you just, you know... We have this whole drama. And then we go, wait a minute. They're just sniffling. Is that really a big deal? Oh, look at that. I didn't like it. It was unpleasant. I got reactive. I made them into this, this, this horrible person. That's a whole lot of unnecessary stress and suffering. Rather than just noticing, oh, sound. Oh, it's a little unpleasant. Oh, it's a little irritating. Oh, they must have a cold. That's too bad. I just got over my cold. I'm so happy I'm healthy. May you be healthy. That's a very free relationship to that person, right? Same data, different response, outcome, suffering, or well-being. And that's happening moment by moment by moment. You know, walk outside, it's raining. Some of you are like, ah, rain, I love rain. I'm from England, we love rain. Ah, rain, I feel like I'm at home, green grass, it's beautiful, smells, I'll be like, Seventh heaven walking down to the dining room. And some of you are like, ugh, I live in Seattle. Like, we know rain. I came to California for some sunshine, people. Like, you know, and there's the contraction and avoidance and judgment and reactivity and someone stole my umbrella and... uh, Right, so we get to see moment by moment how we're relating to experience. And the, you know, the retreat will be like life. It's full of beautiful things, full of uninteresting things, full of challenging things. And what's different in retreat is we, have, we can slow things down so we get to really look with a microscope, how am I relating or reacting to this experience? How can I be present to it? How can I find a way to relate to life that's wise and kind? and freeing myself from reactivity, which is the cause of suffering. So the Buddha, in another text, he said, the yogi acts clearly, yogi is a meditator, clearly knowing when, or cultivates mindfulness when eating, drinking, tasting, clearly knowing when defecating, urinating, clearly knowing when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. Basically, all the time. So even when you go to the bathroom, be mindful. P 
pee here now, as they say. <laughs> oh, as one graffiti, I was in Bodhgaya in India, and there was a lots of good toilet graffiti. And the, there was a this was in the in, in the outhouse, and it said, uh, "The best place to let go." <laughs> so, bad Buddhist jokes. <laughs> um, so there really is no break here. You might think, you know, you, you know, you might be walking very slowly and very beautifully, mindfully, and you go up to your room and you open the door very mindfully, and you close the door. Oh God! Finally, I'm in my room. You know, and everyone's just oh. <laughs> no one's looking, and I get my chocolate out, and you know, whatever else I've got. And <laughs> where's my phone? Oh damn! I handed it in. Shit. Oh. <laughs> and then you open the door. <laughs> There's really, you know, it took me a while to realize I'm not doing myself a service by checking out when I go to my room. It doesn't, like, it's not serving anything. Right? It's, if I'm here, I may as well do the practice as much as I can, as fully as I can. Right? Not tight, not, not pressure, not grimly, but as, as, as dedicated and as patiently as I can. So see if you can really take it in that spirit. Like everything you do, right? The way you make yourself a cup of tea, right? Can you really be present to that? Or the way that you shower and you massage your hair when you, with the soap and you smell, well, no, it's scented free. You, you don't smell the scent. You're, you're trying to get a smell out of it, but it doesn't smell. <laughs> it just smells of sort of oils and sort of weird stuff. And, but you're present to all of that, you know. You know, and as, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm a nature lover, so having an embodied attention is a beautiful thing because it wake, when your body is awake with mindfulness, your senses are awake. And so you have more receptivity and sensitivity to life. You know, you go outside and you feel, like when I came off the plane, I was in Mexico for a few weeks teaching, I came off the plane, it's like, wow, the air's really soft here because it's more moist. And because we're having this tropical... The front move in it much more moist. It's humid, like sweaty, you know, or the smells, or the textures of of the breeze on your skin. Right? There's a whole wonderland of experience that becomes available when we're embodied, when we're present. You know, I, I teach in many beautiful places, including here. And one of the nice things about teaching in beautiful places is I can say, why wouldn't you want to be present when you're here? When you're walking around, when you're tasting this beautifully love-filled vegetarian food, why wouldn't you want to be present? Why wouldn't you want to be present as you're walking up and down through these trees? Why wouldn't you want to be present sitting in this gorgeous Dharma hall? So this invitation... Uh, to to really drink deeply of this time, this moment, this experience. It's precious. This retreat, even though it seems like, even though Sunday might seem like a long way away, <laughs> it will come in a flash, and you'll be wanting to move in by Sunday. So, so if you can appreciate, relish, take advantage. You know, I was working with a student. This very dear student I've been working with for a while and she's had two bouts of cancer. She's got three young kids and um, uh, very dedicated to the practice. And But, you know, like all of us, hates 
pain, hates physical pain, doesn't want to have cancer. And um, so we've been exploring, and I've been exploring with her very patiently over the months, how she can open to the pain. Because she had a lot of post-surgical pain. Some of the surgery went wrong. It left scar tissue. She had you know, more surgeries. It was just one of these long, ongoing, painful, difficult uh, illnesses. And, um, and I kept talking to her about this thing about... Um, uh, suffering equals pain times resistant. This is one way, very simple way we can look at how mindfulness can free us from suffering. And I kept saying, you know, to the extent that you're resisting and fighting and judging and hating and contracting around your pain, it's going to make it worse. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know all that. Yeah, 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 it's great. Yeah, yeah. But I hate it. <laughs> and I want it to go away. Of course you do. It's painful. Why, would you want it? Why wouldn't you want it to go away? But it's here. Yeah, I know, I hate it. Yeah, well, notice what it feels like to hate yourself. Notice what it feels like to hate your body. Notice what it feels like to contract around that difficult experience. So over the weeks and the months, we, you know, there was a slow kind of nudging towards her opening to and surrendering and allowing and just simply being with this difficult, flux, fluctuating sensations of pain from the scar tissue, from from the surgery, from all different layers of it. And we just had a talk this week and um, we had a very profound session the week before where she was really able to kind of get that idea of um, surrendering the resistance, of just showing up and allowing whatever was there to be there and, and, and finding some peace with that because it is there. To fight it just makes it worse. And then we had a session uh, a couple days ago and she said, you know what happened? The pain went away. And I said, that's amazing. It might be a coincidence that the pain just went away. But it went away when she was able to shift the reaction and the resistance and the contracting around it. Right? Maybe you've noticed this today. Maybe you notice some knee pain or back pain. And you go, oh! and we tighten, right? You, get, you feel something unpleasant, we tighten, we contract. Everything else gets tight. What, what happens? We add to the pain. So again, mindfulness with that clarity, we, we see how we compound an already difficult experience and make it worse. And we see if we're like this, and we can do this, and maybe this, and this. this the pain's still there, but we've relieved a lot of the suffering in relationship to it. So this is all arising in relationship to the first foundation of mindfulness. We haven't got to the other three yet. So tomorrow we'll introduce the second and a little of the third foundation. Well, I've really been speaking about the second foundation, which is this pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutral, neutral quality of every experience and how we react to that, how we want the pleasant, we react to the unpleasant, space out to the neutral. And then we'll expand the field of our practice to include our heart, our emotions, feelings, thoughts, mind states, moods. But with the same orientation, can I be with this? Can I notice my relationship or my attitude to it? Can I see if I'm uh, getting caught up in reactivity. Is there a way to let go and find some ease to surrender, to allow this experience 
whether, however it is. So I'm going to close with a couple of things. I realized my talk would take about three hours and then we would just be touching the little bare surface of mindfulness. As you'll see, mindfulness is a very rich, multifaceted tapestry. And, you know, I've been studying this practice for almost 35 years now, which makes me feel old saying that. Um, and it never ceases to hold my attention. So I want to read this piece from uh, a colleague and friend, Jan Chosen Bays. She's a Zen teacher down in Southern Cal. Uh, not in Southern Cal. Somewhere. Doesn't matter where. Hi, Jan. Somewhere. I think she's up north, north actually, in Oregon. I forget. Anyhow. And I'm reading this because it, it speaks beautifully to a principle that arises out of mindfulness, which is this willingness to be present and, and witness and allow whatever's happening to be here. And the more that we can do that, the more that we can find peace right here. She writes, she's writing in the context of a Zen practice. In Zen tradition, there's a lot of commitment, a lot of taking of vows. And so she writes, in this passing moment, everything comes to be. And I vow to choose what is. I vow to choose what's here. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. Being with what is, I respond to what is. So I'm partly reading that because we're, and the, the, the practice is very multi-layered. We're being present to experience. We're looking at our relationship to it. We're cultivating an embodied awareness. And w that awareness supports wise action, wise response. So she's speaking to the responsive part. When hungry, when starving, I choose hunger. Well, when starving, you could also choose to eat, <laughs> like we will do, and very shortly. So I think mostly what I've been wanting to share with you is... Um, want to cheer your efforts and hang in there. Whatever your experience is today will be different tomorrow. You're, sort of, you're, doing the, the, you're doing the hard work of arriving. The more we arrive and settle and rest, our energy grows, our brightness grows, clarity grows, our embodiment grows, our understanding what we're doing here grows. So you're doing beautiful work Thank you for your practice. So let's just sit for a moment. Just let these words settle.
I'll close with a, just a line from the Buddha. He says, meditate, live purely, be quiet. Do your work with mastery, like the moon come out from behind the clouds and shine. Meditate, be in silence. Do your work, which is simply being present to this and to this and to this. So thank you for your attention. So it's almost 5.30, so we have time for our evening meal and then we'll be come back in here for a seven o'clock sit. So enjoy your dinner and rest or work meditation and the rain and see you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.